So if you're there with me, Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. This week, I don't normally listen to this podcast, but I just for some reason turned it on and this podcast told me a story, a story out of uh, London, out of the UK, and uh, there's some controversy brewing. And the controversy was uh, surrounding uh, this English public figure, and his name is Richard Dawkins, and um, the Church of England had uh, posted something on one of their social media accounts, or maybe it was all of them, that, that said that they were praying for Richard Dawkins and his family. He had just suffered a serious stroke, and so the Church of England was saying, we're praying for you. And he's a very public figure. What happened next is that people throughout the UK began to chime in, and they, and, and they began to chastise the Church of England and say, why are you praying for this individual? It was particularly non-Christians asking, why are you praying for Richard Dawkins? Now, why would people be telling the Church of England not to pray for somebody? Well, if you've never heard the name Richard Dawkins, he's probably the world's best-known atheist. He's the best-known atheist alive right now in the world. He is sort of the head horseman of what they call the four horsemen of the new atheism. Christopher Hitchens, who died a few years ago, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and there's one other guy. I can't remember his name. I'll apologize to him when I figure it out. So they were saying, well, why are you praying for a man who does not believe in prayer? Why are you praying for him? If he doesn't believe that communication with God is a real thing, of course, because there is no God. Why would you pray for this man? Let me just read you a quote from Richard Dawkins so you can get an idea of, of, of who he is. He says this in his book, The God Delusion. God is, if he exists, God is a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic racist, an emphasidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Why would you pray for that guy? People were asking And it raised two questions in my mind, and I hope it raises two questions in your mind, which is this. Should Christians pray for those who are self-proclaimed enemies of God? Should Christians pray for those who are self-proclaimed enemies of God? And two, should we pray for people that don't ask us to pray for them? Or specifically, people who might say, please do not pray for him. Richard Dawkins did not ask people not to pray for him, but there could be people who said, please Uh, Please do not pray for me because I don't believe in prayer. What do we do? That was the first thing that hit me this week. The other thing that I did is I googled the hashtag Good Samaritan. Lots of people have heard and know what a Good Samaritan is, right? And so if you pull it up on social media, you find thousands, tens of thousands of people hashtagging Good Samaritan for good deeds done by someone to another person. And most of these are random acts of kindness, some of them heroism, is being a good Samaritan stopping for someone whose car is broken down on the side of the road? Is that really what the parable of the good Samaritan is about? Let me just up front say this. I hope at the end of this, one, that the Spirit of God moves in you and you understand more what it means, what this parable means, 
But I don't think what it's saying is that you need to pick up every hitchhiker that you see on the side of the road, that you need to invite every homeless person that you meet to live with you. I don't think that you need to start up your own nonprofit AAA service. I think there's more to this parable than that. And so my hope is that we see what that is. I think the parable is far more transcendent than that, though there may be times when those things are something that God calls you to do. This isn't just the everyday kind of experiences. These, there's something different about this parable and the story Jesus tells, and so we'll get to the heart of that. Now, very quickly, if, if, uh, if you weren't here last week, you can go back, and, and I'm not going to do it again, but I went on a little bit of a lecture about what are the parables and how should we read them and what is their structure and what is the history of interpretation. I won't do it again. But the main reason we're going through this new series on the parables is because they're the teachings of Jesus. And I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my Master. And so there's nothing better to do than to sit under His teaching and hear Him talk to us. And I said the best way to listen to the parables and understand the parables is to think of the king talking about his kingdom, to be like a child sitting at his feet. And what we also find is that most parables are familiar, at least a lot of the ones we will talk about you've maybe heard before, even if you didn't grow up in the church, you've just heard of them. You've probably heard of the Good Samaritan. I talked about last week about the final episode of Seinfeld. And then we talked about how parables, what they're, what, why Jesus talks in parables is he's trying to uncover for the people of God the mystery of the kingdom of God. So parables are meant to speak to the kingdom of God. They speak to this world in a sense, but ultimately there's another layer of them where they're uncovering this mystery of the kingdom of God. There's always mystery related to the kingdom of God. So let's look now more in depth at this parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, if you're on our email list, I, I said this week, I said, in some ways, calling it the parable of the Good Samaritan is, is a little bit offensive because it's assuming that most Samaritans aren't good. And so here's one example of a, of a Good Samaritan, right? It's better to call it the parable of the Samaritan. And um, before we get to the actual parable that Ben read for us, what we have to see is the context in which Jesus uh, speaks of this parable. So, let's start in verse 25. It says this, Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Here's the framework. And everything that comes after is Jesus referring back to this first question, what is eternal life? Now it's important here to understand who is this lawyer. Most likely this lawyer was... uh, a part of sort of, the best way to look at it is is sort of like a political party known as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were law-abiding Jews and um, they gave particular attention to following every single commandment of uh, of what we call the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law. And so this is really uh, the lawyer at, at, at the forefront. And the Pharisees were always trying to catch Jesus sort of off of his game and kind of put him into a situation uh, 
where he maybe answered wrongly or he did something to sort of expose himself. And again and again, Jesus doesn't play by their rules. And instead of giving him an answer, he asks a question. And the Pharisee knew the law forward and backward, so it's not as if the question that Jesus asks him next, it's not like Jesus is wondering, does he know? (coughs) Jesus responded to him saying this, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Of course, he knows that the lawyer knows what is written in the law. Everybody knows what's written in the law, if you were a Jew. And so he answered him. This is the lawyer speaking now, verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. (coughs) And really what he's doing is he's... uh, He's quoting from two separate, almost bookends of the Mosaic Law, and he's saying, you basically need to inherit, not inherit, excuse me, I've got something in my, basically you need to follow the law fully. And the law mainly consists of loving God fully and loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, and you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now here's what you might not realize just by reading that. By Jesus saying, do this and you will live, he's implying that you have not done this. And for the Pharisee who his whole life, all he's ever tried to do is to follow the law perfectly This is like an attack on his character. It's an attack on his identity. And it would have stung. Which explains his next response. Verse 29. But he, that's the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? And this question really gets at the heart of what this parable is all about. Who is my neighbor if being a neighbor is what it takes to inherit eternal life? Now, what you have to understand here is for the Jew, how they always interpreted the question, who is my neighbor, It was always a fellow Jew. Anybody outside of the Jewish heritage and religion would have been considered a non-neighbor. And so the Pharisee is thinking, the lawyer is thinking, I have been a good neighbor to all my fellow Jews, so how could he question whether or not I have kept the law? Who is my neighbor? Now here's the deal. As we go, you need to know this about the relationship between Samaritans and Jews. So Samaria, Samaria was just sort of in the, uh, just north of, at this time, Israel. 
And really what a Samaritan was, was a half-Jew. Because long ago, uh, what happened was the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms. The kingdom of Judah, which is where Jerusalem is in the south, and the kingdom of Israel, which was in the north. And what happened is the people who were a part of the kingdom of Israel, kind of in the north, um, they began to sort of intermarry with the local tribes that lived in that area. And uh, because of that, the people in the kingdom of Judah began to view them as impure, uh, outside of the will of God. And, And this sort of tension began to grow. And then the people of the kingdom of Judah, which Jerusalem was in, stopped allowing the people of the kingdom of Israel to come and worship in Jerusalem. So the people of the north... They set up their own temple, and they began to worship Yahweh, the same God, but in a different temple. The people of, Israel, or of Judah said, this is unacceptable, and the tension and the bitterness grew. Eventually, the northern kingdom was invaded and conquered by the Assyrians, and then the intermarriage began to become even more as uh, the, the people of the northern kingdom were taken off. Uh, into Assyria, and then they returned, and so you see what's happening, and so now we have these seemingly two people groups, Samaritans and the Jews, and the Jews believe the Samaritans to be no longer brothers and sisters of the same faith, and there was incredible animosity. It's almost hard, we we can't really imagine the animosity between these people groups. Perhaps the best way uh, to understand it would be current, modern-day Israel and those in the West Bank. Those surrounding Israel now. That sort of tension, that sort of hatred. This is how, and it was both ways. It was both ways. Because, of course, the Jews had forbidden long ago the Samaritans from worshiping in Jerusalem. One rabbi at this time, the time of Jesus, said this about the Samaritans. He who eats the bread of the Samaritans is like the one who eats the flesh of swine. Now, Jews don't eat pork, and so there's nothing worse than eating the flesh of swine. That's what it was like to eat bread given to you by a Samaritan. Now, the common understanding of the day as well, this kind of helps highlight the hatred that they had, is for a Jew, if you were passing along a road and, and you saw a Samaritan drowning in the water, you had absolutely no spiritual or moral or legal obligation to help. None. No one would even think twice if they heard that you saw a Samaritan drowning and you allowed them. In fact, if you were to help them, then you could be in some serious sort of social trouble. You see the kind of hatred that there were between these two people? So important to understand that as we hear the parable that Jesus is about to say. Um, I think as, as, as I think about this relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans, I can't help but think of what I think to be sort of a universal truth for all human beings that we have the greatest capacity to hate those who are the most like us. We have the, hated, uh, the greatest capacity to hate those who are most, most like us. I knew this uh, well as a young kid and a 
about the third grade, I, I met one of my arch rivals uh, on the basketball court. And um, he actually ended up being a rival from third grade all the way through high school. We would play against each other. And in third grade, it was, an, it was a championship basketball game and came down to the end. And when you're in the third grade, there's usually one or two players on each team who are kind of, you know, have the ball a lot of the time. <laughs> I guess I was one of the ball hogs. And um, I went down, there was maybe like 20 seconds left, and I went down and I scored a basket to put us up by one. And I'm thinking, man, I got, I got my rival, man. I got him. Well, he went down and he scored at the buzzer, and he beat me. Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. So as, as you're forced to do, as, uh, as a young, I think you're forced to do this all the way until you become a professional. You must stand in a line <laughs> facing the other team and shake their hand. Well, I stood at the back of my line, and he was at the back of his line, and we got finally to the end to shaking each other's hand. This is so embarrassing. I can't believe I'm talking about this. I straight up cold cocked him in the face. <laughs> and then I ran away, right? Because I knew mom was coming after me, man. I was like, I think I went and hid in the bathroom. It's like, mom, you can't come in here. It's like male only. Why do I tell that story? I am a sinner in need of grace, and the people that are most like us tend to be the ones we have the greatest capacity to hate. I do not hate this individual anymore. If I ever saw him, I would probably try to give him a hug and apologize to him. I don't know if you think that's true, if you've experienced that in your own life, but the Jews and the Samaritans were so similar and it's why I think they hated each other so much. In fact, you probably wouldn't even be able to tell the difference if it weren't for the clothes they wore and the accents that they might have had. Because in every other way, they were so similar. Very important to understand this parable as we go. So here we go. Verse 30. Jesus replied to the man's question, who is my neighbor, with a story, a metaphorical narrative to explain some higher truth. Jesus said this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, there's some important things here I want to try to explain. Down from Jerusalem to Jericho, just to give you some context, this was about 15 miles from Jerusalem and Jericho, and the elevation change was about 3,600 feet. So Jerusalem's kind of up on this kind of crown, and Jericho's kind of down in this valley. So it's a 3,600-foot elevation change over 15 miles. Now, I'm really bad at knowing, well, what is that like? So here's a comparison. If you were to start at Snoqualmie Pass and make your way down to North Bend, that's about 19 miles and only 2,400 feet of elevation drop. So what you've got to picture here is this high desert, rocky road. There is, uh, of course, <laughs> 
no paving of the road. It's a, it, it's a very hard road, okay? And, and you're coming downhill, and you're probably on a donkey, and there, was these, uh, there were these street robbers that this is how they made their money. They would wait for somebody to come along, and they would jump them, beat them up, steal all their stuff, and usually leave them for dead. So here's the picture. And this was, some, this was uh, fairly common, and so the people at the time would they would, they would know, I know that road. I've been down that road. Or I've heard about that road. They would say, I, I, I know about these street robbers. Man, that is dangerous territory. So coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was probably in Jerusalem because he was probably there worshiping at the temple. And he was probably going home to his hometown of Jericho. Now the other important thing in this very first uh, sentence here is understanding what does half dead mean? So here's what the scene. They have, they've beat him up. He's bloody. He's, uh, I don't know if he's been stabbed. Probably because he's half dead, which means he's unconscious. They've stripped him, so he does not, no longer has his clothes. Uh, some, some commentators would say, well, maybe he had his undergarment on. That doesn't really matter. They've taken sort of his outer layer, which would have been his identifying mark where is this guy from? Is this a Jew? Is this a Samaritan? Is this somebody else? Okay? And he's half dead on the side of the road, unable to speak, unable to cry out for help, half dead on the side of the road. And, and, and it would have been hard to know if he was alive or not. So, verse 31. Now, by chance... A priest was going down that road. Very important here. The same word, going down. Meaning the priest, who had probably been in Jerusalem performing his duties as a priest in the temple, performing sacrifices for the people, he was now returning to his home in Jericho, where the biggest population of priests lived besides those that lived in Jerusalem. So he was probably returning from doing his job, his religious duty, and he was coming back down that same road on his way home. So you got to picture this. These are supposed to be, the, the priests were like the elite of society. They were the ones that everyone else uh, aspired to in a sense, but they were also sort of the um, high class of the society. And he's coming down, and he sees this half-dead man on the side of the road. And what does he do? And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now this verb, saw him, is what they call a participle, mean, meaning he was seeing him. It wasn't like it was a passing glance, like he's seeing him, he's looking at him, and he's purposefully going around the other side. And probably the reason that he was staying around the other side is because if he got too close, he could potentially be violating some of his uh, cleanliness requirements as a priest. And we'll talk about that in a second, what those were. But he, it's not just that he barely sees him, he's seeing him, He's looking at him, and he's trying to identify what kind of man is this. Is this a Jew? Is this a Samaritan? Is this somebody else? Is he alive? Is he breathing? And he probably can't tell. And so he makes sure to stay far enough away. 
That's the picture. And he obviously doesn't help him. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came down, or sorry, when he came to the place and saw him, same verb there, and seeing him, he passed by on the other side. Now, astute Bible scholars will take a look at this and say there's one thing different when he came down to the place and saw him. Now, probably what that means is that he got a little bit closer to the man. See, he's not a priest. He doesn't have the exact same uh, requirements on how close he can come to a dead body or to helping a Samaritan or, or whatnot. So he probably got a little bit closer, gave a little closer look, but still decided, you know what? Too much of a risk. I'm going to go around the opposite side. And a Levite was somebody who, uh, by blood, they were a part of the tribe of Levi, so they were almost born into this special class of people, and they were the helpers of the priests in the temple courts. And so there's all this history in the Old Testament of what a Levite was, but it was somebody who by birth had been born into this particular class of society, and again, they're in the upper class. So you have these two figures, the priest, the Levite, and they both decide to walk around the other side and not help. Is this making sense? Kind of the picture that's going on. You have to kind of understand it. It's hard for us to get where Jesus is going here and why he's setting this up. There's a few reasons why they, they, they probably didn't help. Like I said, if you were to come in contact with a dead body or somebody who died once he was in your possession... As a priest, you would be unclean for seven days, having touched a dead body, which means you couldn't do your job. And then there would have been the potential public ridicule had you helped a non-Jew. And then suppose that they found him alive. What are we supposed to do with him now? This would be a serious inconvenience. And so they're fearful, right? Like, it makes sense that they're fearful because they're not sure what's this guy's nationality, what's his story, why is he half dead on the side of the road, if I stop and help him, am I now exposing myself for these same robbers who might be just behind the rocks waiting for me to kind of pull over and stop? There's all sorts of risks involved with stopping, and it makes more sense to just justify why I'm going to move along without So they justify, they, well, he's probably already dead, or he's probably not a Jew, or he might be alive, but he's going to die soon. Here's what some of the non-biblical Jewish teaching at the time would have said about this situation. What they would have said if they had helped and this man turned out to be a sinner or an evil man. The teaching at the time, which is not in the Bible, but the teaching, the, the, the thought of the day was this. If you were to help a sinner or evil man, you will receive twice as much evil as you did good for them. So this is going through their head. To us, it might seem like a very odd way to think, but this is what they were thinking. 
Now Leviticus 19 commands any God-fearing Jew to save the life of a fellow Jew if he is in danger. It's a requirement of the law of God. And so they have to do some internal work to convince themselves that this man must not be a Jew, therefore he is not my neighbor, therefore I am not by the law of Moses, by the law of God, required to help them. They have to convince themselves. And here's the bottom line. Out of a combination of fear and hard-heartedness, they kept themselves from compassion. Out of fear and a hard heart, they found no compassion for this man. And they justified it. Now look at verse 33. But a Samaritan. This is where you're literally supposed to go, what? If you were sitting there, listening to Jesus tell this story, you would not have thought this is where he was going. You would have thought, okay, he's said priest, Levite. Now he's going to say just an ordinary Jew came by. That's where they thought it was going. And then Jesus throws, but a Samaritan. And what should have happened if you really understood the story is all of you should have gasped. (gasps) What? A Samaritan is the next figure in this parable? That's what would have happened to the people listening to Jesus tell this story. I was trying to think of a parallel to this, and I was trying to think of, think of like two Super Bowls ago. If you had been listening to the radio cast, Steve Rabel telling us the excitement, they're down to the goal line, Russell Wilson takes the snap, and you've already finished the story in your head, right? And he turns and he hands the ball, but what do you hear? And Wilson takes the snap and he drops back to pass. And you're like, what? Like, could you, I I was watching it and it was happening to me, but if you were listening on the radio, you're like, he must have misspoke. And it's like, everything's in slow motion. This is what it would have felt like. But a Samaritan, what? Turn that up. Did he just say a Samaritan? Yes. A Samaritan. almost hard for us to understand how powerful, how shocking those three words would have been. But a Samaritan, the people I hate most, just stepped into this story, and the dread, I know where he's about to go, this is going to be the hero of the story. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion had compassion. This is actually a verb in the passive voice. So it doesn't really do it justice in this translation. In the NIV it says this, he was moved by compassion. Because compassion literally moved on his person and he could do no other but to stop and help. Why is that so important? That he was moved by compassion. Because this story is ultimately not about how you help people. It's about the heart of those who help people. And the heart of those whom Jesus highlights as those who will inherit eternal life are people whose hearts are not hard, but they are soft enough 
that compassion can literally move on them and make them into compassionate people. It's not that he didn't have fear. It's not that there was no risk involved for this man, just as much as with the priest and the Levite. But his heart was not hard, and he allowed compassion to move him. He's still a target for the same robbers. He still could pick up a disease that this man had. He doesn't know anything about him. But he had no fear in his love for this man. And look what he did. Verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on him oil and wine. This is, this is so huge. He didn't see him from afar and walk around, but he went to him. And he didn't just come close enough to see what kind of man he was, and he still wouldn't have known. And he wouldn't have known, just like the priest and the Levite, because he'd been stripped of his clothes. So there's a couple ways you can tell where somebody's from, usually. What kind of clothes are they wearing, and what kind of accent do they have? This man had neither. He could not talk. He was unconscious. His clothes had been stripped off. But yet, this man came up close to him. And not only close enough, but he touched him. And not only did he touch him, he put his hands on him and he took oil and he rubbed it on his wounds to soften the skin. And then he took wine and he rubbed it over the wounds to disinfect them. And he bandaged them up. And then look what he did. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to look er, and took care of him. You have to understand the lavishness of the aid that he's putting on him. I mean, this oil is expensive. He puts him on his own animal which means he was walking now down the steep, rugged mountainside as this man continues to be unconscious. And he takes him to this inn. And this isn't like a holiday inn. I think holiday inns are nice. It's not even like a Motel 6. I mean, this is a dark place because an inn was a place where everyone that couldn't get somebody to house them. This was a culture of hospitality. So if you were at the inn, it meant nobody wanted you, nobody liked you. It means that you were probably in Israel and you were probably a Samaritan. And it means probably that you were, if you weren't a Samaritan, you were probably a criminal of sorts or an outcast of sorts. And he takes him to the only place that will take him and the traveler and he pays for him to stay there. And look what he does. He took care of him. For how long? 15 minutes. No. Verse 35. And the next day, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. This guy took a stranger. He does not know if he's one of his own. He, he touches him, he puts oil on him and wine, and he binds him up, and he puts him on his horse, and he carries him the rest of the way, which has been a long trip, and he gets to this inn, 
and he stays with him overnight and he looks after him all night long and he sits by his side. And the next day he pays for the room and he says, whatever else, I'm coming back, I'll pay for it. This is a crazy kind of compassion. And it's so important to note that that the Samaritan did all of this without a peep from the half-dead man. This man was not asking him. He was not pleading with him to help him. He did not cry out and say, I have no one to help me. The whole way through, this whole journey, the man says nothing. But he helps him anyhow. So often I say this in my own life, and you've probably said it in yours. Well, I would help someone if they just asked me to help them. I'm just waiting for them to ask me for my help. Then I'll help them. I'm just waiting for them to start the conversation with me about my faith. Once they do that, I'm all in. But what if they literally can't or don't know how to ask for help? What do we do? with those people. I think it's so important too to realize that when we read this parable, this is not the same moral ethic of compassion that the world would tell us. The world says something like this, do unto others as they would have, or as you would have them do unto you. You say, isn't that in the Bible? Yeah, that's in the Bible. Jesus said that. And most other major religions have some type of this golden rule ethic. But when you read the um, Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says these words, this is almost like the baseline understanding of compassion. Like, well, everybody knows you want to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then, like Jesus always does, but the Christian ethic is so much more. A secular anthropologist and uh, economist Uh, David Graeber said this, without some kind of reciprocity, society would no longer be able to exist. And I think this is how the world thinks of the ethic of compassion. Well, I'd want them to do it to me, and if we really want to maximize the common good and, and what we're able to accomplish as a society, we need this reciprocity. You do for me, and I do for you. This is how societies work well. This is not the same as what Jesus is teaching in the parable. Jesus tells this parable in such a way, specifically that, you cannot come to the conclusion that the Samaritan knew that he would get some type of reciprocity from the man he was helping. Because there is no indicators. The man can't speak. He can't say, listen, if you help me, just wait. I have got a lot of gold back at my place. If you help me, I'll give it to you. Or even, if you help me, I'll help you in a little bit, or I'll pay you back. He can't, and this man has no idea if this is a rich man or a poor man because his clothes have been stripped and he can't talk. There is nothing in the story that that tells us that there's any thought in the Samaritan's mind that he is operating out of the ethic of the world, which is we all have to live with a compassion of reciprocity because I'd want him to do it for me. No, that's not the way this story is. The story is literally a man who does everything for somebody else thinking that there's nothing coming his way. That is such a different way to think about 
the ethic of compassion. I just wanted to say that because it's not the same. Jesus is always pushing us to something else, to a radical ethic. And it's not the same as the sorts of things that you see when you hashtag Good Samaritan. This is something so much more. Okay. Verse 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? The lawyer says. He can say nothing else. He knows. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This parable starts with a question of advantage. Who will inherit eternal life? But Jesus ends it with a statement of action, a call to action. Go and do. The original question, who will inherit eternal life? This is a question that many of us have asked ourselves. And many people were asking Jesus, and many of us, if we haven't asked it, should be asking. And Jesus purposefully doesn't give a direct answer because there is nothing you can do to earn eternal life. The classic view throughout human history and every other major religion besides Christianity is this, that eternal life is something that happens after death as a reward for a life of good deeds. That is not what Jesus taught. That is not what Christianity teaches. And when you ask the wrong questions, you're going to get the wrong answers. <laughs> the lawyer found it out. You don't ask how you can get eternal life, but you ask, how can I love the Lord God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength? And how do I love my neighbor as myself? That's the question Jesus wants him to be asking. Not how do I earn eternal life, but how do I love God with all my heart? The question, how do I get eternal life? Jesus answered, be a neighbor. Go and do. And he says, everyone is your neighbor. I don't know if it's clear to you, but Jesus' answer here basically to the question of what I must do to inherit eternal life is to love God by loving every single human being that you encounter as your neighbor. Why does God want us to do this? Well, He wants us to act out who we are, and who we are is created in His image. And, what, and who is God? God is a missionary God. God doesn't just ask us to go and do. God Himself is going and he's doing. His mission has always been to people who do not deserve his help, to people who might not even be able to cry out for help. God's mission has always been to all peoples, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. God's plan has always included them. There is no ethnic distinction to God. He sees everyone as his mission field, and he loves everyone. And so how then do we live this same mission, God's mission, like the Samaritan did? How can we do this well? One, we've got to Mr. Rogers, them all. 
<laughs> We've got to Mr. Rogers, every single human being. Ann Lamott wrote this. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates the same people that you do. If we only be-neighbor those who look like us, smell like us, dress like us, speak like us, have money like us, are educated like us, then what kind of God do we serve? And what kind of world is this? We'll tell you what, we're definitely not filled with the Spirit of God if this is how we think. We definitely aren't following Jesus if this is how we think. The Good Samaritan is more, of an more than just an example of humanitarianism. It's a parable that teaches us this. There is no such thing as a non-neighbor. That's hard to hear because there's all sorts of people that I don't want to be neighborly to. Do you remember 9-11? 2001? Do you remember what happened two days after that? And on the news, there was a man on the TV screen in the Gaza Strip, and in his right hand, in the hand of honor, he was holding an AK-47, and in his left hand, the hand of disgrace, he was holding an American flag as it burned. And God says, that's your neighbor. Love him. That's hard. Second, talk is cheap. The Good Samaritan proved what it meant to be a neighbor. He didn't just talk about it. He proved that he was. He proved that he fulfilled the great commandment to love God with all of his heart and mind and soul and strength by loving his neighbor. It's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't just talk about himself being the Messiah. He proved it through his actions through the way he loved and his willingness to go to the cross to die. Talk is cheap. Actions are profound. And true love always leads to restoration. Third. Lavish aid. I had a buddy of mine from college. We were out uh, having lunch. I hadn't seen him for a while and we were talking and he was telling me about his sister and his brother-in-law, and how they were Christians. This, this was not uh, yet a Christian, my, my buddy. And uh, he was talking about them, and, and I love this guy. He is a good man. <laughs> Interestingly, he happens to be a lawyer, but he's a good lawyer, and he's a good man, and uh, he's a great friend. And he said an interesting thing to me. He said, yeah, my brother, or my sister and my brother-in-law, they're great people, but you know what? I think they help people to a fault. And I, and I stopped. I, I didn't say it, but I was, the wheels were, what? Help people to a fault? What does he mean? I think we all know what he means. He means they help people too much because their helping actually hurts them. And the more and more I think about it, the more and more I think, is the way that I aid people, lavish like the Samaritan. I mean, he doesn't just kind of help. I mean, he 
goes all in. He doesn't just call 911. He takes care of him. He sits with him all night. He pays the bill. And in the, in the history of Christianity, what you see again and again and again, when people live out this kingdom ethic, what you always see, when they live a life of lavish aid and compassion, what you always see is unbelievable expansion of the kingdom of God. A guy named Rodney, Rodney Stark, who used to teach at UW, he now teaches um, at Baylor University, And when he wrote this book called The Rise of Christianity, he explains, he's trying to show how Christianity went from this small group of fishermen to this empire-wide movement. And he explains how Christians in the plagues that came through the Roman Empire, one of the reasons why he believes the numbers grew so fast is that everyone else, everyone with means to help people, who was not a Christian, would leave the cities when the plague would hit and run to their lake houses and uh, to other people they knew in other cities to avoid the plague. And the Christians, with means, would invite people that were sick into their house and they'd sit with them and they'd care for them and they would touch them. And because of that, people that survived the plague could not help but have met a Christian during their time of need. And of course, if they recovered and did not die, what do you think they wanted to do with their life? Follow Jesus. And so Christianity grew rapidly. Interestingly, Rodney Stark is now a Christian because he could not explain this type of compassion and care, this fearless love, apart from there being a God who was empowering these people. Likewise, it was Christians and the kingdom ethic of compassion that was the reason for modern medicine and the establishment of the first hospitals because Christians refused to give up on people that were dying. And so they tried to figure out what is happening. How can I help these people? And so Christianity, the kingdom ethic of Jesus, always says, I'm willing to help. Not until it hurts, but I'm willing to help even though it hurts. What shall we focus on when we're thinking about our neighbors? If we focus on what they are right now, if we just look at their state right now, here's our tendency. It leads us to ask the question, how can they help me? And so we only help people that can help us. We would never help the half-dead man because we have no idea if he can ever help us. But if we think like Jesus and the Samaritan and we focus on what they might become, then it leads us to ask this, how can I help them get there? This is what I'm saying. This is how God looks at us. God doesn't look at us and say, wow, he's great, so I'm going to help him because I know he's going to be able to do this. He doesn't see us as we are. He sees us as that which we might become. That's how we need to look at people. Not where they are right now, but what they might become if God gets a hold of their life and transforms them into the image of His Son. How can we possibly live this ethic? How can we possibly transform our heart to look more like the Samaritan's heart and less like the priest and the Levite? 
How can we possibly have a heart that sees everyone as our neighbor and sees no one as our enemy? How do we get to this place that seems almost impossible to get to? And what's interesting is that some scholars, and, and I would agree with them, believe that this parable that Jesus is, uh, talks about is actually uh, something of an allusion to 2 Chronicles 28.10. And, and if you go there, it's in the Old Testament, it's talking about the history of Israel. And it talks about, remember these two kingdoms? Well, the kingdom of Judah, there was an evil king, and he was doing everything uh, outside of the will of God, and they get into a war, Uh, with the Assyrians and with the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. And what happens is the kingdom of Judah is defeated and over 200,000 prisoners of war are taken back to Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, to become slaves. But there's a prophet named um, Oded who warns the people, do not do this. Do not take them as your slaves. And he convinces them. And here's what happens. Those 200,000 men, women, children, prisoners of war, they get to the, get, get to the capital city in Samaria, and uh, the people meet them, and they say, we are going back. And here's what they do. They take this whole group of men and women, and uh, 2 Chronicles 28.10 tells us this. Here's what they did. They clothed all who were naked, giving them sandals. Then they fed them food and drink. Then they put healing oil on their wounds. Then all who were weak, they put on their own donkeys. And they, they, those from Samaria, marched them all the way back to their fellow Israelites in Jericho. You see the illusion? You see the parallels? And you ask the question, if you're not, ask it right now. What did the prophet Oded say to the rulers in Samaria that convinced them To do that. And this is the key to having a heart that loves your neighbor. What did he say to the people? This is what the prophet said. He said, Have you no sins of your own against the Lord your God? Have you no sins of your own? And this is what convinced them to love their, their enemies as neighbors to clothe them and feed them and put them on their own donkeys and send them home. Have you no sins of your own? I think we don't treat people or it's hard for us to treat people that we don't like as neighbors because we don't see ourselves in them. We think they're so different than us. They're so much worse than us. And so when I think of someone like Richard Dawkins, and you ask, do you see yourself in Richard Dawkins? My immediate answer is, I want to say, of course not. Of course I don't see myself in him. And I want everybody to hear me say that because I know that we're probably more alike than we are different. Probably that's why he makes my onions boil. But have I no sin of my own against the Lord my God? Am I really that different than him? 
And when I answer no, my tendency will always be to not see my neighbor as a human being. My tendency will to be to see him from afar and not get close enough to actually see him as a human being. I have a proximity issue. I want to stay far from him because the closer I get to him, the more that I see this, this just person has a face and the face has a name and the name has a story and I only can know that when I get close and I see my neighbor. And so when I think of Richard Dawkins, what I have to remember is this. He's actually so much like me. Because when Christ first looked at me, he would have said, no, (laughs) that looks nothing like me. But then he would have remembered that I was created in the image of God. And he would have said, I will love you as a neighbor. Do I see in Richard Dawkins the image of God? Perhaps it's even more profound than that. Perhaps when I see Richard Dawkins, all I see is the sinner who's rejected God, who's publicly an enemy of God. And so I'm convinced that I've never been like that. I've never been openly an enemy of God until I stop for a second and realize that I too have been that. That I too am a sinner in need of God's grace. And so the two most significant things about Richard Dawkins I have in common with. I'm created in the image of God and I'm a sinner in need of grace. And so I'm not different from him at all. I'm exactly like him. I'm unable to be fixed by myself. And so what I need to do is I need to recognize in Richard Dawkins or any other person that I see, I need to recognize that I'm exactly like them. For I too was half dead on the side of the road. Death was coming for me. I was unable to even recognize my own need for help. Like the traveler, I could not even cry out for my own salvation. Like everyone, I was silent because I was unconscious to the reality of my imminent spiritual death. Human beings have always been blind to their own ignorance. And the Gospel records for us how truly immense this blindness was in the historical account of Jesus He shows us the moment in time when people were most blind. That Jesus, the Son of God, stood in front of them and you know what they yelled? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. And they spit on Him. And you know what He did? He prayed for them. He said, Father, they know not what they do. And he picked up his cross and he marched down the road step by step by step to his own death. That's compassion. That's what I need to do for everyone that I encounter. 
There are so many people who both physically and spiritually, the breath of life is escaping them. The breath that God breathed into them is leaving them slowly. And let us remember that we too were once short of breath, slowly dying, unconscious to our own demise when Jesus sought us as a stranger. As a stranger. We were wandering from the fold of God. He rescued me from danger. He interposed on me His precious blood. And He poured on me the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus carried me out of harm's way. And He sat with me through the dark night of my soul. And expecting nothing in return from me, He paid the bill in full. And He did all of this before I could even ask for His help. So we started tonight asking, whom should I pray for? Would I ever pray for an opponent of the gospel like Richard Dawkins? If he doesn't ask for me to pray for him, should I still pray for him? Or what if he tells me not to pray for him at all? What should I do? Last week I stumbled across a debate of two, uh, from two decades ago between a famed British atheist, another famed British atheist named Anthony Flew, and a Christian philosopher named William Lane Craig debating, is there a God? Well, Anthony Flew was one of the most famous philosophers of his day and also one of the most famous atheists of his day. And I say once because... In the the later years of his life, in 2004, Anthony Flew decided that God must exist after all. The evidence was too strong. Now, he asserted that he was just a deist. He did not believe necessarily in the God of the Bible or the God of Revelation. But clearly, his official position had changed. Is there a God? And no one would have ever expected that Anthony Flew would say, yes, there's a God. He died in 2010, and we don't know if he ever knew the God of the Bible or Jesus Christ as his Savior. But here's an example that someone who had made a name for himself by being an opponent of God can have a change of heart. And it reminds us the most important truth. No one, no one is too far from God. And if I want to love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength, And on my mind, I must love my neighbor as myself. In full awareness that every human being that walks this earth is my neighbor. Let's pray. Father, help me to love my neighbor. Help me to see every human being as my neighbor. You put people in my path, Lord. You put people in our paths for a reason. You want us to see them as what they are, created in the image of God, sinners in need of grace. Yes, we want to help their physical needs, but Lord, let us not forget about their spiritual needs. Let us not forget that we were half dead on the side of the road 
that we were separated from you, God, until you came and you found us, and before we could even cry out, that we were unconscious to the fact of our demise, you saved us, that you picked us up and you carried us home. Let us never give up on anyone. Let us not fear loving people fully, lavishly, not thinking of ourselves or the risks, but thinking only of what you've done for us. Thinking how fear did not stop you from walking step by step to Calvary, to die, to take upon you the wrath of God for my sin. Let me love with no fear. Lord, bring someone to our mind and our heart tonight that you want us to love more fully. Maybe it's an enemy or someone who we thought was an enemy that you want us to love as a neighbor. Bring that person to our mind, Lord, and help us to do something this week to show them that we love them no matter what they say about us, no matter what they say about our God, no matter where they are or how they might be able to help us in return, help us to love them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.